This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today, in our 378th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new theropod, specifically Spinosaurid, from Portugal. Also, a group of Tethyshadros dinosaurs found in Italy. Nice. Lots of European stuff going on. Yep. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Pinacosaurus. And I have a fun fact, which is about penguins but also how animals stay warm in crazy cold environments, including lots of dinosaurs. Ooh. Well, they have to, especially if you're a penguin. Yes. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we have two new patrons to thank. They are Luke and Flurpy Hooves. Thank you both very much for joining. I know Flurpy Hooves has already been all up in our Discord, having some really good conversations, and I really appreciate that. And thank you very much to Luke as well for joining. And then rounding out our shoutouts, we've got Kessler, Ray, Rhinosaurus, the Gray Allosaurus, Ben at Jurassic Site B, Jesse, Ermel, and Scott. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Welcome to our new patrons, and thank you to everybody who supports us and our show. So jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with our new Spinosaurid. From Portugal. This one was published in PLOS One, so it's open access. Everybody can see it. Nice. And as usual for a PLOS One paper, it's crazy long with a bajillion pictures and lots and lots of text. So Good, you can really get into the weeds. I, I did get into the weeds. <laughs> and it was written by Octavio Mateus and Dario Estraviz Lopez. The dinosaur they described was originally found in 1999, but they found more bones from that specimen in 2004 and 2008, and then it was formally described in 2011 for the first time and assigned to Baryonyx because it has very similar teeth and tooth serrations to Baryonyx, not too surprising for a Spinosaurid. Mm -hmm. In 2015, the then Baryonyx remains were included in a phylogenetic analysis by Arden et al., and it was recovered as a sister taxa of Baryonyx because its jaw doesn't turn up at the tip like Baryonyx does. So they thought that basically from this phylogenetic analysis, it might turn out to be its own genus and not a Baryonyx. Interesting. It's always interesting when it's the details that make such a big difference. Yeah. Well, there, there aren't a ton of bones and details to work from on this one, so that might be why it took a while to notice this difference. Mm -hmm. But then in 2020, a fourth expedition found more material, and thus we have this redescription as a new genus, sort of validated it. It was found in Portugal in the Papo Seco Formation, which is about 1,500 meters northwest from 
Azoya, if you're familiar. It's named Iberospinus natarioi. Iberospinus basically means a spinosaurid from the Iberian Peninsula. Take the spinus, stick it onto Iberio. There you go, Iberospinus. And then Natarioi is after Carlos Natario, who discovered the holotype back in 1999. The Iberospinus holotype from all of these different finds over the years, over the decades, includes quite a few bones, but a lot of them are pretty fragmentary, unfortunately. So maybe the most important one is the front of the left jaw with at least four teeth, but it is just the front, maybe only like the front quarter or third of the jaw. So not a not a great bone, but enough to find some good characters. There's also a partial shoulder blade, pieces of hips and ribs, part of the heel, one small toe claw, and about 20 partial vertebrae, mostly centra from the tail. Not too bad. Yeah, it's not that bad, but... Again, a lot of those are in varying states of quality. Sure. Not all super great. Very few of them are full bones. It's hard to determine the size of a Birospinus based on what we have. One of the tooth crowns, meaning the part that's not in the jaw as a root, is about 37 millimeters or an inch and a half long and is pretty conical, like a typical baryonyx tooth. Definitely a formidable mouth on mm. Iberospinus. Mm-hmm. Stay away. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to stay away because it's been extinct for over 100 million years. But (laughs) (laughs) one of the back vertebrae is about 16 centimeters or about half a foot long, which is obviously way bigger than our vertebrae. Although the same ballpark as you'd see in other similar spinosaurids like baryonyx. When you put it together from their skeletal drawing, They consider it medium-sized, and it looks like it's roughly about 9 meters or under 30 feet long. Medium-sized, I think, is a good description, at least for a a Spinosaur, it's medium-sized. Nowhere near Spinosaurus, but about the same as something like Baryonyx. The height is even more speculative, since we basically have no long bones. You know, we just have a toe claw and like a heel bone, and that's about it scapula maybe if you want to include that as part of a limb (laughs) but really almost nothing telling us how tall it was assuming that it has the same general proportions of other spinosaurids it would probably be about two and a half meters or about eight feet tall if it is similar to baryonyx and it's sort of build it would have weighed between about one and two tons so a little over two thousand pounds to maybe three four thousand pounds medium size but still beefy yeah I mean, I think most medium-sized dinosaurs are beefy. Yeah. (laughs) The tail vertebrae are proportionally longer than tall, unlike Baryonyx and Suchomimus. So I guess its tail may have been a little bit longer when it was alive. It's really hard to tell, though, because we don't know how many vertebrae were in the tails of these dinosaurs. Like you were talking about sauropod necks. They're almost always incomplete, so it's kind of hard to compare. The authors of this paper found, again, that the serrations on its teeth are similar to baryonyx, although a little bit smaller. So the serrations themselves are slightly smaller. Might be good enough to indicate, you know, a special feature of the dinosaur. All the fossils were found in the same area, and they're early Baramian, which puts them about 130 to 125 million years old. Roughly the same is Camariasaurus and Bonaventrix which were both found in northeastern Spain, not too far from Portugal, possibly on the same island in that time. Kind of hard to say for sure. 
However, all three of these dinosaurs, these spinosaurids, were found in different formations. So Camariasaurus is from the Camarias formation, Valle Bonaventrix is from the Morea formation, and again, Iberospinus is from the Papo Seco formation. So different formations, but all in the same stage, the Baramian. So they may have all lived at the same time and seen each other all the time, or it might be that by the time one of them was alive, the other ones were long gone fossils. <laughs> we don't really know from what we've found so far. I should also mention Baryonyx is also from the Baramian, so it might have also been in the mix. A lot of diversity going on in the Iberian Peninsula with Spinosaurids. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. They found that the groove on Iberospinus's jaw was different, and there was also a bump on its hip, which was thicker than on close relatives. So those are basically the diagnostic characteristics they came up with for giving it its own genus names, in addition to that vertebrae proportion and maybe the tooth serration. The closest relatives of Iberospinus are Baryonyx and Suchomimus, although phylogenetically, the analysis looks like it's not in Spinosaurinae. And I just want to point out, I just learned after reading about how to pronounce Latin names that things that end in A-E should probably technically be pronounced E and not A, so it should probably be pronounced Spinosaurinae, but that seems really weird. Well, we're not used to it. I also don't know how many other people pronounce it that way. Yeah, I, I feel like I usually hear it pronounced A. So like vertebra in plural form technically is vertebrae, hmm. but everybody says vertebrae. So I don't know. It's weird because it's sometimes people will follow the rules and sometimes they don't. So I'm not sure exactly. I think it's easier when I say A to understand like how it's written, because since we're speaking this <laughs> to people, if we say A instead of E, you might be able to tell that it's spelled A-E because O-E is also pronounced E in Latin, technically. It's like everything is just pronounced E, apparently. It's kind of weird. Anyway, in 2017, another study sliced through a rib of Iberospinus to check for lags. I actually don't know for sure how much slicing they had to do. They said they did histology, but the rib was already broken, so they might have been able to see a fair amount of the detail even without cutting it. That makes it easier. It does. And they estimated that it was about 23 to 25 years old based on the histology. It's pretty old. Yeah, it is actually pretty old for a, a dinosaur. They definitely didn't typically live as long as we do. At least the theropods didn't. It probably reached sexual maturity at about 13 to 15 years old based on that histology. Although the vertebrae weren't fully fused, so it's possible that it wouldn't have been considered skeletally mature, even though it was probably an adult and near its full-grown size. The paper also includes an interesting piece of paleoart that reminds me of the game Operation, you know, where you're like trying to pick the bones out of a puzzle man <laughs> without mm -hmm. touching the electric tweezers to the edge. Right, or else you get beeped. Yeah. It has, basically, it's an Iberospinus recreated with all the muscles and skin and everything on top of it, and then they have these little cutouts to show where the significant fossils were found. It's a really weird strategy I don't think I've seen before. Oh, I like that. It's interesting, yeah. If you want to see it, it's open access, so you can check the link in our show notes on our website. And as another aside, Apple Podcasts isn't supporting hyperlinks again. So if you look at our show notes that are come in text form when you download a podcast from an RSS feed, the first sentence ends with a, the hyperlink for this episode's show notes. Or you can go to inodino.com and go to the episode list. Or if you're listening to this right after it comes out, it'll be right on the top of the front page. 
Either way, you can get quickly to this paper. So to summarize, there are a lot of Spinosaurids in Europe, especially the Iberian Peninsula. Hopefully we'll find a more complete individual one of these years rather than these super fragmentary skulls and vertebrae bits, but it still seems to be enough to qualify it for being its own genus. And if you're interested in seeing Iberospinus, it's housed at Museum of Lorinha, but I don't know if it's on display. The museum website doesn't mention if it's on display. They probably have some other cool Spinosaurid stuff on display at least, though, because that's a big part of Portuguese dinosaur paleontology. It's Spinosaurs. Yep. Moving on to Hadrosaurs. We're not doing the usual sauropods and chylosaurs <laughs> today. You couldn't find a sauropod paper this week? Not this week, but don't worry, they'll be back. I wasn't really worried, but thank you for allaying my fears. Good. Glad <laughs> I could help. <laughs> there were a bunch of Tethys hadros dinosaurs found in Italy recently, and this was a paper published in Scientific Reports by Alfio Chiarenza and others. These fossils were found at the Villaggio del Pescatore. It's a former limestone quarry, also known as the VDP site. So if I say that, that's what I mean. It's a so little easier to say. Yeah. The fossils, again, they're the Hadrosaur Tethys Hadros insularis. And we covered Tethys Hadros as the dinosaur of the day back in episode 77, if you want to check that out. Named after the Tethys Sea, which turned Europe into a bunch of islands, basically. Yes. Now, as a Hadrosaur, as a quick reminder, it had a bulky body, a somewhat short neck and tail, and long legs. It was named in 2009, and the holotype was nicknamed Antonio, and at first it was thought to be a dwarf species because it was living in the late Cretaceous when Europe was a bunch of islands, and that's how we got the species name Insularis, which refers to the insular dwarfism. Hmm. It's really named after all the European geography of the time. Yeah. But now they think that Antonio wasn't a dwarf species. Antonio was just young. Hmm. And previous studies found that the islands may have been pretty large and not that isolated, at least in the VDP locality. In the paper, they described a specimen nicknamed Bruno, as well as six additional specimens. I love when there's nicknames. Yeah. And they re-described the genus. They found Tethys hadros to be a non-hadrosaurid hadrosauroid with broad neural spines, having only two bones in the fourth finger, and there were a few other details in the shapes of the bones. The Bruno specimen includes a nearly complete skull, pelvis, and most of the tail. So of these seven recently found individuals, the largest, oldest one is the one that got the nickname Bruno. That sounds like a pretty good one. Complete skull and most of the tail gives you a lot of detail. Yeah. Now back to Antonio. Antonio at first they thought was a mature specimen, and that's why they thought Tethys hadros was a dwarf species. And that was based on fusions in the bones. But doing histology, they found that it had 11 lags. And it turns out that Bruno, this new specimen, had at least 14 lags. And only Bruno had signs of bone remodeling. Mm. Showing Antonio what a real mature dinosaur looks like. I guess so. Or showing us, maybe. Yeah, more us. <laughs> Antonio would have known. Yeah. <laughs> So they also determined that Antonio reached sexual maturity between four to six years before it died, and Bruno reached sexual maturity between 10 and eight years before it died, and that's based on the, quote, 
decrease in zonation between legs, end quote. The space between the legs was smaller. And this correlation has been suggested in sorapsids, basal amniotes, to coincide with being sexually mature. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. The The lags get closer together as they get older, like tree rings. Mm-hmm. Based on those estimates, then Antonio's thought to not be fully mature and Bruno's potentially fully mature. Or at least closer to fully mature. And since Antonio is now considered to be not fully mature and Bruno is about 20% bigger than Antonio and also more stout and robust and older, that's how the authors suggested that Tethys hadros was not a dwarf dinosaur. And for fun, other animals that were found in the area, they include small crocodiliforms, pterosaurs, and fish. There's about 400 still undescribed specimens that have been found in this area, too. So there's a lot we can still learn. Yeah, that is a lot. That's quite a find. Mm-hmm. It's really cool that they found so many individuals. There's seven total individuals. It, it's nice to have more than just one, like we have for Iberospinus. Yeah. <laughs> like not even a very great one individual versus seven. Well, eight if you include Antonio. It's seven new individuals. Oh, wow. Even better. Mm-hmm. Maybe the rest will get nicknames eventually. There's only two weeks left to sign up for one of the coolest dinosaur dig programs we've ever heard of. It's a two-week, actually 16-day, field program in the American West put together by this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, CNCC. If you've been listening to our show, you know that we're big fans of their dig programs, and it's no surprise that their first program only has three spaces left. That's not many spaces. No, and there's possibly less by the time you're hearing this. If you want to join the July 6th to July 20th dig, then make sure you sign up right now. That's the one with three spaces left. Yes. There are a few more spots left on the second dig, too, on July 22nd to August 5th. But it's also a good idea to sign up now before space runs out there. When you get to the field, you'll be taught by expert paleontologists from CNCC and experience a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. So go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all the details and make sure you register online by May 31st or preferably sooner. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. Sabrina and I love to find the best dinosaur museums around the world, and that requires a fair amount of traveling. A lot of times those museums are off the beaten path. One of the most challenging museums to get to was the Mifune Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. The only way to get there is either by taxi or bus, and we very nearly got stranded because we couldn't read the bus schedule and there weren't taxis available, so it got a little bit dicey. Yes, we would have been in much better shape if we'd studied just a little more Japanese before that trip. Fortunately, we eventually managed to find our way thanks to some very kind and helpful people who work at the museum. A few more phrases, though, would have made a big difference for us, so we highly recommend preparing for your next big trip by signing up for Rosetta Stone at rosettastone.com dino. For a limited time, just for our listeners, you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership of all 25 of their language courses. The lifetime membership for all 25 courses is just $179, and normally that's $399, so it's a great deal. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. 
In other news, the Mill Canyon dinosaur track site in Utah was badly damaged recently. A government-funded backhoe removed a wooden boardwalk that was built to protect the footprints. And uh, paleontologist Jim Kirkland said that no paleontologists were aware that this was happening. Ugh, I think I saw that on Twitter. It was in a lot of places. The Bureau of Land Management denied that the backhoe messed up the tracks, but others have said that they were responsible. They did it. Visitors reported the damage and said there were tread marks on top of the tracks. Oof. Now, some of these tracks are at least 112 million years old. They were found back in 2009, and then the site opened to the public in 2013. There's more than 200 footprints from the Cretaceous of at least 10 types of dinosaurs. Sauropods. There you go. I worked in sauropods. <laughs> Iguanodons, stegosaurs, allosaurs. There's also evidence of crocodiles sliding on their bellies and evidence of a dinosaur swimming. So it's a pretty cool site. That is really cool. I can see why they built a... I think they built that boardwalk next to it to protect it, right? Wasn't mm-hmm. that the original idea? Sort of like they do by other track sites in the Northeast and in Australia and stuff. Yeah. Now, the boardwalk was being replaced because it was starting to warp, and they said it was a trip hazard or it was becoming a trip hazard. But these tracks are very fragile. The construction work is on hold while there is an investigation, and then when the construction resumes, the BLM said that they'll work with paleontologists, so that's good. The Center for Biological Diversity in Tucson, Arizona, however, estimated about 30% of the site is permanently destroyed. Oh, my God. I didn't realize it was permanently destroyed. Yeah. I was thinking maybe there were just like a few tracks that got a little screwed up from a track on it. I didn't think it got destroyed. That's terrible. I think this is why so many people were talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first post I saw of it was actually by Bureau of Land Management or something like that. Like, look, we're tearing out this old crappy boardwalk and putting in a better one. And people are like, what are you doing? You have to be careful. You can't just drive on these really fragile tracks yeah and then since then i've seen a lot of people coming out against what they did yeah it sounds like it was completely accidental it's just a huge bummer yeah i think the problem was that apparently no paleontologist knew it was happening yeah it also sounds like they didn't really understand why there was this boardwalk there Right. If you you approach it from the side of the fragile thing that it's trying to protect, mm. it's like someone got a memo. We need to replace this boardwalk. And they just drove in and not didn't pay attention to like what was going on. Maybe. But that does surprise me since it's the BLM. It's very weird. That's all speculation. We have no idea. True. In other news, there's a man who allegedly stole a twenty five thousand dollar dinosaur claw from the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show. Christopher Thomas, he was charged with taking the claw from a showroom, and then he tried to sell that claw to another vendor a few days later, and that vendor recognized the claw, knew it was stolen, and alerted the owner, because the owner had reported, the owner had actually reported two stolen claws. So that second claw, unfortunately, is still missing. Oh, man. It doesn't sound like the best strategy, stealing something and then trying to sell it to someone like a couple hundred feet away. Yes. And it's a good thing the vendor community is so tight-knit. They alerted each other right away. But that was a good reminder to me that the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show happened this year. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, me either. (laughs) In museum news, the Long Island Children's Museum in New York has a new exhibit called The Age of Dinosaurs. They've got animatronic dinosaurs, including protoceratops that 
is watching their eggs hatch. There's a T-Rex, a Potosaurus, Chasmosaurus. They also have interactive components like operating an animatronic T-Rex, though I'm not sure what that actually means. We have operated animatronic T-Rex before in a museum with like a little PlayStation type controller once. Okay. I can't remember the exact details of it. The amount of decisions you could put into how it moved were very limited, Mm -hmm. but it's a little more fun than if you just walk by it and it's motion activated to do the same thing over and over. You feel like you've got some control over it. Yeah. You can also take a photo of yourself riding a triceratops or being inside T-Rex jaws. Those are always fun. And they have some special activities on certain weekends. The exhibit's open from now until May 29th. Also in New York, the Buffalo Museum of Science has a traveling exhibit, Antarctic Dinosaurs, the exhibition. This exhibition is getting around. I know we've mentioned it a few times. Yeah. Again, you can touch fossils from Antarctica and see Cryolophosaurus. You'll also learn how scientists do research in Antarctica. And that exhibit is open at the Buffalo Museum from now until September 4th. In dinosaur media, there's some details about the characters of Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur that have been revealed. So we already knew Lunella Lafayette, Moon Girl. She's 13 years old, and she protects the Lower East Side of Manhattan with her roller skates and gadgets. And this is the animated series that's coming out. And then, of course, there's Devil Dinosaur, which is described as like a 10-ton dog. (laughs) Playful and loyal, great sense of smell, but also, you know, has teeth and claws. It's pretty much a T-Rex, isn't it? I think so. Especially if you're talking about 10 ton with sharp teeth. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Some other characters include Casey, a, quote, 13-year-old Puerto Rican Jewish powerhouse, end quote, according to Marvel, and who's also Moon Girl's manager and best friend. There's James Jr., Lunella's dad, who's a business person and runs a roller skating rink. Adria, Lunella's mom, who's a DJ and social activist. Mimi, Lunella's grandmother. And Pops, Lunella's grandpa. And there's The Beyond, a trickster who doesn't know anything about humans. So the series will come out this summer. We'll get to see all these characters. So it sounds like there's only one dinosaur. We got all these other characters, human characters, but no other dinosaur characters. But the dinosaur is in the title. Maybe there'll be other dinosaurs that appear throughout the series. Maybe. The first one you said Mimi, I thought you were going to say Minmi. It was going to be an ankylosaur. <laughs> <laughs> no, no such luck. Not in this case. DC Comics has a new miniseries called Jurassic League, and they feature a prehistoric Justice League of anthropomorphic dinosaurs. What? <laughs> yeah. Like dinosauroids, the human dinosaur hybrid weirdos? Kind of. It's. Like reimagining the superheroes as if they were dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. So I think these might be some spoiler alerts. The issues haven't come out yet, but there's some details about them. Sounds like it is, in fact, a spoiler alert that you're trying to give. <laughs> in the miniseries, Superman is sent to Earth and raised by humans, but he's an anthropomorphic brachiosaurus. <laughs> this is a real thing made by the people that own the DC Yeah, DC canon. Comics is doing it, yeah. They made Superman a Brachiosaurus? Batman's an Allosaurus. Wonder Woman's a Triceratops, and the Joker is a Dilophosaurus. 
Those are so random. How did they come up? It seems like Batman should be not something with sharp teeth because isn't his whole thing that he doesn't really use weapons that hurt people? I feel like Batman should be a pachycephalosaurus or something. Like he's going to knock him unconscious. And... Apparently Batman will not be eating meat, but I don't know how that'll work. <laughs> But the idea is that Batman fills criminals with fear, so they wanted him to be a carnivore, but he doesn't have superpowers, so they didn't want to make him too powerful like a T-Rex, and that's how they picked Allosaurus. I see. Okay. And Allosaurus has better hands than T-Rex, so he can still use gadgets. Oh, good point. Could be. Now, Superman is a Brachiosaurus because the Brachiosaurus looks harmless, but is solid and strong. Isn't Superman's whole thing that he's faster than like a train or a plane or something? And can fly? Faster than a bullet? I think that's what it is. Brachiosaurus, like faster than, you know, something like a it's tortoise. It's a supercharged Brachiosaurus, so <laughs> okay. he could probably still move fast. Okay, good. The Joker's meant to be colorful and unpredictable, so that's how they came up with the Laphosaurus. So I'm guessing this is going to be a really unrealistic Jurassic Park-style Dilophosaurus. No. Yes to unrealistic, no to Jurassic Park style because they're they've still got their human-shaped bodies. <laughs> and they're very muscular, but now they also have teeth and claws and horns and they're also wearing clothes that resemble their uniform so you know which. Is Joker going to have a frill though, like the weird Jurassic Park Dilophosaurus? No. Joker's got a crest and what looks like a mane. Okay, so kind of like a callback to it kind of i would not say that any of these characters resemble jurassic park dinosaurs <laughs> in any way okay it's something very new and different it sounds different yes there's going to be six issues it's a mini series and the first issue comes out may 10th no explanation of why they picked triceratops for wonder woman Triceratops they picked because it's an herbivore that could defeat a T-Rex. At first they were thinking pterodactyl, but then they thought, defeat the T-Rex. I thought the T-Rex was a good character. Oh, we haven't heard what a T-Rex is yet. No, because Batman's an Allosaurus. Hmm. Interesting. Sounds like they're setting up Wonder Woman to save the day, maybe. Maybe. And last in the news... The official Jurassic World Dominion trailer has dropped. I'm sure most of you listening have seen it. <laughs> yeah, it was during the Super Bowl. Yeah, and it dropped a few days before. It's about three minutes long. There might be some spoilers in this trailer, just so you know, if you haven't seen it yet. There will definitely be spoilers if you're trying to avoid them. Skip mm -hmm. ahead. You see a lot of the characters that we've been talking about. There's Owen Grady, Claire Deering, Maisie, Henry Wu. Ellie Sattler, Alan Grant, Ian Malcolm. I didn't know I didn't notice Maisie in the mix. She is older, so she looks more grown up. Is it the same actress? Yes. <laughs> it seems like Blue has a baby that maybe Owen is trying to train. Owen's also seen maybe training Parasaurolophus. So he's still doing his training thing. <laughs> <laughs> Like that meme that was the raptor training yeah. in 2014 or 15. <laughs> There's also a lot of dinosaurs in the snow, like a really unhappy Apatosaurus, because Apatosaurus would have lived in a warmer climate. There was a lot of dinosaurs without any insulation in snow in the trailer. Mm -hmm. 
But that's probably part of them spreading out and trying to find their way. I guess so. At first, I thought it was just there were those Olympics commercials where they were like promoting winter sports and then they throw dinosaurs in. It's like, well, that's weird. But I guess how else are you going to work them in? Now we know they fit better because the dinosaurs were already in the snow. Yeah. Must be that frog DNA. Yeah. Even though frogs are terrible in the cold. Uh, but... What other DNA? <laughs> Is it the cuttlefish DNA or one of the other weird ones? <laughs> we did see a feathered Deinonychus, which was cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting feather. It was the most feathered dinosaur that I think I've seen in Jurassic Park anything so far. Mm-hmm. There's also a Therizinosaurus going after Claire, and she has to dive into some water, and the Therizinosaurus is feathered. Yeah, nice. We see the T-Rex at the drive-in in the movie, but we already knew about that from the preview from F9. There's Compsognathus, but it's you really you just see a skeleton when Ellie Sattler is paying Alan Grant a visit in the field. And Atrociraptor, which is going after Owen. We knew that one was going to be one of the new dinosaurs featured. And Dilophosaurus, frills and all, comes face-to-face with Claire. We've also got Nazutoceratops, Stampeding, Giganotosaurus, and then the non-dinosaurs like Quetzalcoatlus and Pteranodon and Mosasaurus. Yeah, Mosasaurus is always like a big feature of the Jurassic World movies. It looks like the pterosaurs might have a bigger role too. I feel like the Mosasaur keeps getting more and more like bigger and bigger. Like a, a dinosaur fantasy character that just continues growing indefinitely. And now it's like the size of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> sure can eat. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's always trying to eat things. So it's like, why is it trying to eat that thing? Because <laughs> why not? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. I can't believe we're only a few months away from the movie. Mm-hmm. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Panachosaurus, which was a request from PaleoMike716 via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Panachosaurus was an ankylosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia and China, in the Bayanmandahu Formation and Jadokta Formation. It looked kind of like ankylosaurus with a body covered in armor, but less spiky, and a club tail. Nice. It was estimated to be 16.4 feet or 5 meters long and weigh up to 2 tons. Well, that's a lot smaller than ankylosaurus. Yeah, it was medium-sized. It's also not as robust as other ankylosaurs. It had a flat body. It did have robust arms and legs. It had five digits on each hand and three digits on each foot. And it had hoof-shaped claws. In adults, their skulls were longer than they were wide. And the armor on the upper snout consists of a fused mass. It had these bone tiles on its head and nostrils that formed a depression and had between three and five smaller holes in them. It's unclear why they had those holes. It also had cheek horns, a smooth beak, and rows of small teeth, osteoderms on the neck, back, and tail, although juveniles didn't have osteoderms on the tail. Oh, they found a juvenile. Mm Mm-hmm. And two cervical half rings protecting the neck, as well as long, flat, triangular spikes on the body and tail, and smaller oval osteoderms in parallel rows on the back. And it had a relatively small tail club. It does sound a fair amount like Ankylosaurus. Mm-hmm. But smaller. Panachosaurus was the earliest specimen Phil Curry and Victoria Arbor studied in 2011 that had a complete tail club. They compared the tails of Ankylosaurus and said it was most likely that Ankylosaur tails stiffened before the knob or the club at the end of the tail formed to maximize its effectiveness as a weapon. That would make sense. 
because mm-hmm. a, a bat is still useful, whereas like a loosey-goosey tail with a big mass at the end isn't so useful. The type species is Panacosaurus grangeri, and the fossils were first found in 1923 by Walter Granger, so that's how the species name came about. It was named then in 1933 by Charles W. Gilmore, and the genus name Panacosaurus means plank lizard. Yeah, plank lizard is a pretty good name for an ankylosaur. Yeah, it refers to those plank scutes that covered the head. Oh, the head specifically. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I was thinking the whole body is pretty much covered in planks. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe because like you were saying, on the head in ankylosaurs, a lot of times the bones sort of fuse together a little bit more, more like planks. Mm-hmm. A second species, Panacosaurus mephistocephalus, was named in 1999 by Pascal Godefroy based on a specimen found in 1996 during a Belgian-Chinese expedition. And that species name refers to the devilish squamosal horns, and it means Mephistopheles' head. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really hard species name to say. But I thought Mephistopheles was always kind of a cool word. Yeah, it's like a little bit of a tongue twister. It is. (laughs) Now those fossils, the Mephistocephalus fossils, include a well-preserved skull, lower jaws, a lot of the postcranial, the body, including the cervical armor and tail club. Oh, wow. Yeah, from neck to tail. Yes, but the left arm, part of the pelvic girdle, and the hind limb are missing. They wrote in the description that the, quote, skeleton was not deformed by pressure after burial, and there's no evidence of post-mortem transportation. Cool. That's helpful in it not getting too messed up. Mm-hmm. It was also probably a subadult. Ah, okay. So even though it's smaller than Ankylosaurus, maybe it could have gotten bigger. Well, the second species, so. Oh, the Mephistophocephalus. Yes. I probably screwed that up, but. (laughs) Smaller than the Grangerized species. Gotcha. The Mephistocephalus species is about 10 feet or 3 meters long. It had a smaller skull, too, than the holotype. Oh, that's way smaller, yeah. They could pretty much fit in a room. (laughs) Almost. The differences, though, in the nostril region is why they named a second species. The authors wrote, quote, the nasal is by far the largest bone of the skull roof, forming more than half of the length of the skull. Hmm. The skull shape, though, is similar to a juvenile Panacosaurus grangeri specimen. Now, in the Mephistocephalus specimen or species, the premaxilla is not completely covered by nasal and accessory dermal plates like we see in Panacosaurus grangeri. In 2010, Gregory Paul suggested Panacosaurus mephistocephalus was a junior synonym of Panacosaurus grangeri, but in 2012, Robert Hill said that the second species was valid, and Victoria Arbor and Michael Burns confirmed it. And Victoria Arbor in 2014 wrote about the systematics, evolution, and biogeography of ankylosaurs. Not just in 2014. Yes, it's writes true. about that all the time. <laughs> In 1935, Young referred a third species, Panacosaurus ninesiensis, based on similarities in the teeth and jaws, but now that one's considered to be Panacosaurus grangeri. In 1971, Marianska had said that Panacosaurus ninesiensis was a junior synonym of Panacosaurus grangeri, and other paleontologists have since agreed. Marianska also synonymized another dinosaur, Cymrosaurus, named by Maliv in 1952 with Panacosaurus grangeri. When Gilmore was first describing Panacosaurus grangeri, he only described the right ilium and tail vertebra without naming the dinosaur, and then later in that year officially named it as Panacosaurus grangeri. 
The holotype of Panakosaurus grangeri was found in the second Central Asiatic Expedition of the American Museum in the Flaming Cliffs, and it included a crushed skull, the first two neck vertebrae, and osteoderms, which is probably how they came up with the plank head name. Mm. In Gilmore's second description, which was published in December of 1933, he wrote the specimen is, quote, so badly crushed and broken that much of its detailed structure is obscured, but in view of its unique occurrence, it seems worthy of description, although I am fully aware of the meagerness of its characterization. (laughs) (laughs) That's such an old-timey way to say it's not a great find. Yes, there's a badly crushed skull and jaws and a few scattered dermal bones. But the skull was covered in scutes. The teeth were extremely small. He also wrote, quote, although badly crushed and checked in all directions, practically all parts of the skull and lower jaws are present. Ah, nice. Yeah. So if you're good at puzzles, you could put most of it back together. Yeah, and viewed from above, the skull has this sub-triangular shape. And he wrote, quote, it is evident that, as in other members of this family, the entire top of the skull is covered with ossified dermal scutes, which completely obscure the underlying cranial elements. It's good. Yeah. I mean, it's not great for paleontology, but it's really nice for protection. Yes. It was good for that dinosaur when it was alive. And nowadays, we could throw it in a CT scanner and see what's under those scutes. Mm-hmm. As long as there isn't too much metal in the fossil. Now, other specimens, the skull and skeleton of a juvenile was found in 1964 in a Polish-Mongolian expedition and in other localities of the Mongolian Gobi Basin by the Soviet-Mongolian expeditions. Robert Hill and others described a new juvenile specimen of Panakosaurus grangeri in 2003 that was found in Mongolia, and it consists of a nearly complete skull. Nice. Yeah. Maybe not as badly crushed, hopefully. Well, Panakosaurus grangeri turned out to be the second most common dinosaur found at the Banyan Mandahu after Protoceratops andrewsi. Oh, wow. It's mostly known from juveniles and subadults, but more than 30 skeletons were found in 1969 to 1970 as part of Soviet-Mongolian expeditions. Holy cow, I had no idea there were so many Pinacosaurus or Pinacosaurus, <laughs> I never know how to say it, specimens. That's awesome. Yeah, and then another 30 specimens were no, found just... between 1993 and 1998 during Mongolian-Japanese expeditions, and then Canadian expeditions found another 40 specimens between 2001 and 2006. Jeez, so there's over 100 specimens known? That's insane. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like 200 or something protoceratops, but for an ankylosaur, that's like unheard of. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Teresa Marianska described a well-preserved juvenile skull in 1971 and 1977, but there's also a lot more not yet described fossils found, so I don't actually know how many specimens there are. Mm. Or how many species they'll end up with once more of them are described. Mm. Eric Buffet taught referred ankylosaur fossils that were found in Shandong, China, to Panakosaurus in 1995. There was a juvenile described in 2015 that had a complex hyoid bone. Oh, the tongue bone. Yes. And that may mean that Panakosaurus had a powerful tongue to go with the small teeth, which it replaced relatively slowly. Some extant living salamanders have similar tongue bones and prehensile tongues. Oh, huh. So maybe Pinocosaurus ate some insects, or maybe it went for tough leaves and pulpy fruits. That's really interesting. I remember a paper not too long after that talking about how dinosaur hyoid bones probably meant that they couldn't move their tongue that much. 
but I guess that doesn't apply to Panacosaurus. Yeah. That's really cool. There's a paper in 2011 that analyzed the quarry diagram of juvenile Panacosaurus that were found in China, and they said that all of them were found upright with their limbs positioned under their bodies. That's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> and in 2011, Michael Burns and others analyzed the juvenile Panacosaurus grangerized specimens that were found there. All of them had preserved skulls. We wow. Have, we have a lot of skulls. And they found Panacosaurus to be the most basal member of Ankylosaurinae. Okay. Or Ankylosaurinae, according <laughs> yeah. to the pronunciation you, you found yeah. recently. You do the E's instead of A's. Yeah, that's a subfamily of Ankylosauridae, or Ankylosauridae, I guess, meaning that had the club tail. But it's even closer to Ankylosaurus than just a regular old Ankylosaurid might be. Explains why they look so similar. Mm-hmm. Now, four specimens were collected by the Canada-China Dinosaur Project at Bayan Mandahu and were prepared. And a fifth specimen was found at an unknown site at the same area by the Silk Road Expedition. Now, the best specimens of the bunch were on display as part of a traveling exhibit called The Greatest Show Unearthed. Does sound like a pretty great show, all those ankylosaurs. Yeah. The juvenile ones. Now, most of them died in situ, and they were buried either during sandstorms or rainstorms. And then 12 more juveniles were found in the Sino-Canadian Dinosaur Project. Just keep finding more and more. <laughs> and they all had post-mortem insect borings. So they didn't get buried deep enough, fast enough to avoid the insects, I guess. Yeah. In 2021, Gabor and others studied whether ankylosaurs from the Cretaceous lived alone or moved in herds. Adult ankylosaurs were often thought to be solitary because most skeletons have been found as isolated individuals. But some mass death assemblages, or MDAs, have been found, such as the more than 30 juvenile panacosaurus skeletons collected between 1995 and 1996 by the Mongolian-Japanese expedition, but it's possible some of them were discovered before but left behind in the 1969 Soviet-Mongolian expedition. That's a lot for one bone bed. Yeah. It's possible Panacosaurus was gregarious as individuals, maybe for protection, since these MDAs had juveniles of similar sizes. Oh, so they had like a juvenile group? Yeah. Or maybe they came together during a drought. They were found in different localities, and that could mean that this was true gregarious behavior but it still would be hard to know their social structure. Panacosaurus lived in an arid to semi-arid environment with large open areas of low and sparse vegetation, which would have been good for multiple individuals gathering. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place included the Ankylosaur, Minotaurosaurus, Alvarosaurus, Cole and Shuvuya, Ovaraptorosaurus, Chidipati and Khan, Ornithomimosaurs, Troodontids, Titanosaurs, and Ceratopsians. Mongolia has some really cool dinosaurs, especially ankylosaurs. <laughs> yes. And other animals that lived around the same time and place included amphibians, crocodilomorphs, lizards, mammals, pterosaurs, and turtles. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos. Yes, that Thanos named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. 
plus some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, And CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. And our fun fact of the day is that baby penguins have been freezing to death in the Antarctic because it has gotten warmer. How does that work? Yeah, it's really weird. I got into this when I was looking at how cold it is in Antarctica. And all that kind of stuff when I was talking about Antarctica the other day. So almost all of the precipitation on Antarctica is snow, but it does occasionally rain on the coasts. This has been exacerbated due to global warming as temperatures in the Arctic and Antarctic have been increasing. So it turns out the temperatures on Antarctica have actually increased three times as fast as the global average, especially on the coasts. Mm. One area in Antarctica has warmed by about 2.4 degrees Celsius or 4.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Which obviously, and that also happens at like higher, you know, higher in the air. So that can lead to more rain. If you're on that borderline between rain and snow, four degrees can make a big difference in how much rain versus snow you get. So what happens is if it's rainy later in the season when penguin chicks hatch, the chicks get wet rather than staying dry from the snow because it's a lot easier to keep snow from getting you cold than it is to keep water from getting you cold, getting waterlogged. Mm-hmm. So they can often freeze to death if there's a cold snap after the rain. Oh, I see. Because, yeah, again, their feathers insulate much better against snow than rain. I mean, 
when I lived in Wisconsin, I really preferred a 20 degree snowy day to a 40 degree rainy day because it's just cold rain is very miserable. And you imagine you're just hatched out of a shell. You just have that fluffy down on you Mm -hmm. and not the good water repellent feathers on top of that. You're very vulnerable as a, a penguin chick. So because of that, it's mostly a problem for chicks and not for the adult penguins when it rains. Adult penguins can handle truly insane conditions <laughs> as long as they make it, you know, past the chick stage. I've seen March of the Penguins. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Interestingly, speaking of March of the Penguins, there was a study recently and they were talking about how penguins huddled together. And for a long time, people thought they huddled together for entire storms or seasons or things. But it can get really warm in the huddles, like 90 plus degrees in there. Fahrenheit. Yeah. So usually they break apart pretty frequently, like they only huddle together for like 50 minutes and Ooh. then they break apart to cool off a little bit. <laughs> and then come back? I guess, maybe. It's really weird. We don't really know that much about it because we're not there watching them all that often. It's too cold for us. It is. And we don't want to mess with them too much. Mm-hmm. According to Guinness, emperor penguins have been recorded at about negative 40 degrees. That's Celsius and Fahrenheit. They're the same at negative 40 other sources say colder temperatures, but I a lot of times that temperature is just the coldest recorded temperature on Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I believe those numbers. But negative 40 is very, very cold. They can also handle 150 kilometer an hour or 90 mile an hour winds. And if those happen at the same time, the wind chill would be about negative 72 degrees Celsius or negative 98 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, those poor penguins. It is awful. So then I could see like huddling together for a little bit, maybe just when like gusts come up. Maybe that's a strategy. I have no idea. Just random speculation. Penguins, though, don't need to huddle together to stay warm. They stay warm mostly from a thick layer of blubber and several layers of feathers. And they also have really cool adaptations in their circulatory systems. This is really important because they stand barefoot on ice that is often about negative 20 degrees. I can't even imagine. I know. It it blows my mind thinking about standing on ice. The, the first time I really thought about, like, they don't have anything on their feet and they just stand on ice all the time, often with wet feet because they just got out of the ocean. How does it not hurt their feet? I. It's crazy. It's truly crazy. But... There are lots of mammals that do this, too. Like you think about polar bears do the same kind of thing. Arctic Mm. foxes. There's all sorts of mammals and birds that stand on ice. If we tried to do it, we would definitely get frostbite. Mm -hmm. There's no question. I actually was on this subreddit for bare feet running (laughs) just to see. There are people that run barefoot in snow, but most people are like, if it gets below zero and your feet get wet, game over. Like you need to stop because you're going to get frostbite. And very few people even try to go below about 20 Fahrenheit or what is that, like minus five Celsius. Going down to negative 20 degrees is completely out of bounds. Yeah. When it comes to how our bodies handle cold temperatures, basically we have one trick, maybe two. So we can shiver and that can help a little bit to warm us up. Mm -hmm. But our main thing is when we get cold, we send less blood to our extremities to try to keep our core warm and also to try to reduce the temperature loss because the more warm blood you're sending to your extremities, that temperature difference between the warm limb and the cold environment increases the amount of heat you lose. If you have less blood flowing, it's less blood to cool down and then you don't cool down as much, which is better for you. when you're cold, your hands and feet get colder. Yes. Yeah. So it causes actually a really bad feedback loop because 
when you're cold, you send less blood to, say, your feet if you were standing on ice. But as your feet get colder, your body sends even less blood to your feet because it's like, uh-oh, I'm going to cool down if I spend too much blood there. And then eventually what happens is without the warm blood, the tissue can drop below freezing. And that's how you get frostbite. Exactly. As soon as you go below freezing, ice crystals form and cause serious damage to the tissue. It starts on the outside of the skin, basically. So that's like the stage one frostbite. It's usually like yellow. There's all these different colors that you can look for for different stages of frostbite. But in addition to freezing, the other problem is that that reduced blood supply and the crystals forming, the ice crystals forming, stop the supply of any oxygenated blood reaching the foot. So your body's still trying to send a little bit of blood to keep the tissue alive because it needs fresh oxygen. But once it can't get oxygen anymore, then it starts to die in a whole other way. Hmm. So that's basically our strategy. It doesn't work, really. It works for very short periods of time and when it's not below freezing because we evolved in like nice warm Africa right. where we could count on it not being below freezing for very long. But penguins have a whole better trick. Well, birds manage to live on all seven continents. Humans don't really live on Antarctica. No, but the, I mean, there are mammals, though. Yeah. I should also point out just as like a PSA. With humans, we can get frostbite in just 30 minutes of exposed skin below zero, and that's not talking about being wet or in contact with ice, for example. Then it can be even faster. So if you're ever outside below zero, make sure you're well covered. I don't often find myself outside when it's below zero. <laughs> no, but a lot of people do. Yeah. It's good to know. It's actually especially good to know if you don't often find yourself in that situation because you don't you know, know what to expect. With penguins... So they have their feathers and they have their blubber on their body. They actually still have quite a bit of fat on the bottoms of their feet, which help them not get frostbite. They also rock back and forth on their feet to try to minimize the contact of their foot with the ice. That makes sense. It helps. But the real key is that they have a system called countercurrent heat exchange in their legs on the way to the feet that prevent too much heat from being lost in their feet. So like us, their first step is basically slowing down the blood supply to the feet. But unlike us, they don't, that's not their only trick. <laughs> the countercurrent heat exchange works just like heat exchangers we use in all sorts of industrial processes. So we use these in distillation columns, for example. Humans, you know, we design them sort of a humans replicating nature sort of thing that you see all over the place. Our bodies also have countercurrent exchangers, for example, in the kidney for concentrating urine, but we don't have it anywhere in our body for surviving cold temperatures. Basically, the way to imagine it is if you have a pair of parallel pipes which are touching each other, and then you have warm liquid flowing in from one direction of one pipe and cold liquid flowing in from the opposite direction of the other pipe. Mm -hmm. What you get is at the warm entry side, the cool liquid has been warmed up because it's gone all the way along that warm pipe already. And at the cool entry side, the warm liquid has been cooled down. So basically, you end up with just a cold end of both pipes and a warm end of both pipes because they've got all that distance to transfer their heat from the hot to the cold. Mm -hmm. The result is that heat is very effectively exchanged. It's basically the best way and simplest way to exchange a lot of heat. It seems weird that you'd want to pre-cool blood heading towards the feet <laughs> when you're a penguin. Mm -hmm. But in cold weather, the goal is actually to keep the limb cool, but just above freezing. 
So if you stay just above freezing, you don't get frostbite. And the closer you are to the temperature of the environment, the less heat that they lose. And so the less calories they have to burn to stay warm while they're standing on the ice. So if they were like us, they would lose way too much heat by letting their warm blood reach their limbs. But instead, they pre-cool the blood on the way to the foot with the blood returning from the foot. Fancy. It's really cool. Basically, all they have to do to do this is evolve keeping their arteries and veins really close together in their leg on the way to the foot. And then you end up with this fancy strategy where the blood stays warm near the heart and organs, but cool in the limbs. And it still delivers oxygen because it can keep up that flow rate without cooling down too much. Lots of animals have this. Just not us. (laughs) Not our limbs, at least. It's okay. We built other things to help us. Yeah. I mean, we didn't evolve in really cold temperatures, so why would we have this? Penguins can do this not only on their feet, but they also have these countercurrent heat exchangers for their nasal passages, as well as for their arms slash flippers. Basically, everything that isn't covered with a lot of thick blubber and feathers has this strategy built into it. Super cool. And that's why penguins don't freeze. It's likely that a lot of the non-avian dinosaurs, say like Cryolophosaurus or these feathered dinosaurs, which were using, if they were using their feathers for warmth, might have had similar strategies, especially for the feet. The feet seems like the number one one because you're always standing on something cold. Mm -hmm. So it would be really advantageous for them to have that. And since we see it in both mammals, very similar structure in mammals and birds or modern dinosaurs, you know, doing the common ancestor trick, it's likely that some non-avian dinosaurs could have easily evolved this, if not just inherited it from a common ancestor. Well, good for the penguins, although I feel bad for the chicks. Yeah, I wanted to end on a happier note. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dido. Thank you for listening. You can check out our show notes and links to all our sources on our website at inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.